Good morning. Let us pray before we open the word. Father, truly our hearts this morning say hallelujah, we praise you, and truly our hearts say to your Son, the Lord Jesus, come quickly, we are eager to see your reign visible here on this earth, we are eager to see the wicked judged and your saints gathered together, with you visible with us, we're, we're eager to see these things, and we're so thankful that this morning we have the occasion to consider this from, from your word. and We pray that your Holy Spirit would be kind to us as he always is. That he would be kind to us by helping us to understand these things from the scriptures. That we would anticipate them rightly and that we would be blessed by understanding how we can best prepare for that day that we would do so joyfully and with great diligence. We ask for your help in these coming minutes and coming days as we await that wonderful day when the Lord Jesus will come on the clouds and we will see Him as He is. We ask these things in His name. Amen. Well, please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 13. This is the last of three messages in Mark 13. We're, we're closing out this chapter now. We're going to begin this morning by, by reading verses 24 through 27. We'll cover the last, about the last half of the chapter. So as, as you're finding your place there, let's stand and, and we'll read those, those three verses, verse 24 through 27. And you'll remember that Jesus has been carrying on a conversation with the disciples in which He has been talking to them about the destruction of the temple. But the conversation takes a turn here in verse 24. The Lord Jesus is speaking and He says, But in those days after, the tri- after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory And then He will send out the angels and gather His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. You may be seated. I wonder how many of us have invited company to our homes this week. Anybody anybody had company in your home or perhaps maybe even today you've got plans to have people in your home? Show your hands. Yeah, a few hands. How, how did you prepare for, for that company? You probably 
put some food together. What else did you do? You don't want people seeing how you normally live, right? You cleaned. You did some cleaning. Your house doesn't normally look the way that it looks when you've got people coming over. I'm guessing. Maybe some of you empty nesters, you just live in a pristine home all the time and you don't have to clean when people are coming over. Most of us have to clean when folks are coming over. Now, imagine that your favorite celebrity, whoever that might be, contacts you through an agent and says, I want to come to your house. What's the first thing that you want to know? When? I need to know, when is that going to be? And why do you want to know that? So that you can prepare. And on your mind, likely the first thing on your mind is not exactly the food, but you want to clean the house. Well, in this last section of Mark 13, we're told that the Son of Man... King Jesus is coming with absolute certainty. He is coming. It's the greatest event in human history. The return of the king is happening. We have no idea when. Now, we didn't read it here, but it's going to be revealed to us here in in a few verses. We have no idea when. And so, how do you prepare? How do you prepare? Well, The Lord is very kind. He's he's going to reveal to us there's a way to prepare. There is a way to be ready. And He'll give it to us toward the end of the passage. There's actually nothing mystical to it. He's just going to exhort us to be diligent stewards of the Gospel. That's how you, you prepare yourself for the second coming of the Lord. Again, you'll, you'll remember that this passage began with Jesus predicting the destruction of the temple. The disciples immediately asked, when will these things be? Asking, when will the, the temple be destroyed? And so most of the chapter thus far has been about the destruction of the temple. Jesus had told the disciples that in that time of great upheaval, that those events surrounding the destruction of the temple, He said to them, don't believe it when people say, here is the Christ or there He is. In other words, in those events surrounding the destruction of the temple, there were going to be false prophets, false Christs saying, hey, the Lord has come back. And Jesus said, don't believe that. Now here in verse 24 and following, Jesus is answering the implied question, well, how will we know when Jesus does return? More importantly, how do we prepare? Well, the first thing that He reveals is that the Lord will come in spectacular fashion to gather His saints. You won't miss it. Don't worry. You're not going to miss this. The Lord will come in spectacular fashion to gather His saints. Verse 24 again, but in those days, after that tribulation, what tribulation is He talking about? He's referring back to verse 19, the tribulation, the great suffering surrounding the destruction of the temple. After that tribulation, continuing, The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Now, I I would argue, as many others have before me, that while verses 5 through 23, which we've covered the last couple of weeks, while those verses refer to the destruction of the temple, which took place in 70 AD, verse 24 and following begin to describe the second coming of Christ, which has not happened yet. That, that event is still yet future to us. And it is not at all unusual in biblical prophecy to have this, this phenomenon 
known as prophetic telescoping. Prophetic telescoping is when you have events prophesied or foretold in which there is a near fulfillment of one, relatively near, and one is quite distant in its fulfillment. When you read this passage, it looks two-dimensional. The events appear to be side by side, or it looks as if they're going to be fulfilled very closely. However, they're more three-dimensional in fulfillment. I like one, the way that one commentator illustrates it. If you were sitting be- behind home plate in the ballpark and you were to you look through the binoculars straight out, you would see, you would see the catcher and, and, and the pitcher. You'd see second baseman, perhaps. You'd see the center fielder. And you'd see them all very clearly. might look like they're even standing all side by side. Binoculars don't give any real sense of distance between them. But if you were to get in the blimp above the ballpark, you could see that there's actually yards in between each of those players. We know from the phrase that we've just read after that tribulation that these verses depict events subsequent to verses 5 through 23, but it's not clear how long after. Prophetic literature can be that way. You can have things that, that where there's some distance between the fulfillment of the events depicted. We simply know that Christ has not yet returned. So these events, though they're depicted side by side here in, in Mark 13, they are separated by many, many years in their fulfillment. Now, regarding the sun being darkened and the moon not giving its light, etc., this is stock cosmic language from the Old Testament prophets. In fact, we find this kind of language all over the Old Testament prophets. I'll give you a couple of examples here. I would challenge you to read the rest of the prophets and find the other places, but here's a couple of examples. Ezekiel 32, verses 7 and 8. Ezekiel 32, verses 7 and 8. Listen to this and see if you can hear the similarity with Mark 13. Ezekiel 32, 7. When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens. And make their stars dark, I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give its light. All the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over you, and put darkness over your land, declares the Lord God. Now if we were to take the time to read Ezekiel 32 and its context, context being Ezekiel 29 through Ezekiel 32, we would find that that what the prophet is, is talking about is the defeat of Egypt, ancient Egypt, by Babylon. Now, when Babylon defeated Egypt, did the stars literally go dark? Was the sun literally covered? Did the moon literally stop shining? No, they did not. The, the, The prophets used this kind of cosmic language to describe a magnificent event which God caused. The prophets use this kind of language to describe God's work through normal historical events. God defeated Egypt and He used Babylon. Another example of this would be Isaiah 13.10. Isaiah 13.10, if you were to read that whole chapter, all of Isaiah 13, you would find that this is an oracle against now Babylon. So Babylon defeated Egypt. Now here's an oracle in, in Isaiah 13 against Babylon predicting that the Medes are going to overthrow Babylon. And here's Isaiah 13.10. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. And again, I would suggest to you that that did not literally happen. 
Those celestial bodies did not cease to give their light when the Medes historically overthrew the Babylonians. Once again, this is just prophetic language used to indicate that this was a magnificent event that God caused. God was controlling human events to accomplish His will. Just one more example I'll give you. This makes it a bit more obvious that we're talking about figurative or non-literal language. This is Joel chapter 2, verses 30 and 31. Joel chapter 2, verses 30 and 31. Joel writes, I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Once again, you can hear the similarity between that language and what, what uh, Jesus says in Mark 13. But in Acts chapter 2 is where we find the fulfillment of this passage in, in Joel chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, Peter, who is preaching his sermon on the day of Pentecost, Peter says that that, that passage in Joel chapter 2 was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. Now, did those things actually happen? Did the moon turn to blood? And did, did these celestial bodies go dark? They did not. What literally happened? The Holy Spirit was poured out on the church. In other words, once again, we have prophetic language being used to describe a magnificent event that God caused. God was behind this spectacular event. Now, all of this is not to say that God can't stop the sun from shining, that God can't make the stars fall. Absolutely, He can. The point is simply that we need to interpret the Bible on its own terms. And where it is clearly using figurative language, we shouldn't take the license to read it differently. So, we should not understand Jesus to mean in, in Mark 13 that the sun will literally go dark when the, the sun returns, when the Son of God returns, the Son of Man returns. We should not expect the sun to literally go dark. We should not expect the moon to literally cease to give its light. Rather, we should understand Jesus to mean, as the prophets did when they used this kind of language, we should expect, we should understand Jesus to mean this is a spectacular event, the undeniable work of God. Continuing in verse 26. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then He will send out the angels and gather His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. So, the implied question in the passage is, how will we know when Jesus has returned? The answer is, it will be obvious. We will see Him coming on the clouds. We're going to see this. Nobody's going to miss it. What is the purpose of His coming? The, the purpose is He's going to be gathering His elect. Now, this passage coincides with the passage that Pastor Michael read for us earlier this morning, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13-18. through I'm going to read for us again just a few of those verses, verses 16-18. through Listen to those again. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first... Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. How will we know when the Lord Jesus has returned? You're not going to miss it. You're not going to miss it. Some of us may think, oh man, I'm going to kind of stink if I die before the Lord comes back. I'll, I'll miss the show. No. 
The dead in Christ will rise first. They're going to have the best seats. And then those who are left will follow them, will meet them in the air. And as I, as I argued when, when I preached 1 Thessalonians 4, we will accompany him then back to the earth where he will set up his, his kingdom. The Lord is going to come in spectacular fashion to gather his, his elect. Everyone will see it. No one is going to miss it. There will be no mistaking it because it will coincide with the final judgment. All of these things will be happening at the same time. Don't worry, you're not going to miss it. You will not miss it. Which brings us to a second point. Judgment is certain. Judgment is certain. Verse 28. From the, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as you see its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that He is near at the very gates. So we, we have a little parable here. Fig trees show signs that summer is near. Tender branches and, and budding leaves mean it's almost summer. And not so incidentally, when was the last time that we saw a fig tree in Mark? Remember it was back in chapter 12 when Jesus acted out judgment on the temple by cursing the fig tree. Here he's using a fig tree again as a parable, and, and many have argued that once again, Jesus is calling attention to the destruction of the temple, and, and we should find that persuasive, not, not just because of the context, but because Jesus says, so also when you see these things taking place. What does these things refer to? What are these things? Well, look back to Mark 13.4. 13.4. Jesus had just predicted the destruction of the temple, and four of the disciples asked, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Well, th these things in verse 29 are the same these things of verse 4. And given the conversation that took place in verses 1 through 4, these things refer to the events surrounding the destruction of the temple. These things does not include the second coming of Jesus because the second coming of Jesus we saw in verse 24 takes place after these things. So when you see the branches of the fig tree becoming tender and the leaves budding, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things, most specifically that desecration of the temple that we saw in verse 14, you know that it is near. Now the ESV reads, He is near, as do several other translations. But the gender of the subject isn't specified. Strictly speaking, it could be he is near, could be, could be she is near, could be it is near. The question is, what does the context indicate? Because these things refers to the these things that the disciples' original question was getting at and not the second coming of Christ in verses 24 through 27. It's more likely that it should be read, it is near, meaning the destruction of the temple is near. And that's why the King James Version reads, it is near. That's why if you have the New American Standard, you've got a note at the bottom that says that this could also be read, it is near. If you've got a Christian Standard Bible, I believe it also has a note that says that it could be read, it is near. So there's a sign, there is a sign that the, the destruction of the temple is coming. And when you see that sign, you know that it's very close. Verse 30, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. We have that phrase, these things again. This verse is another great reason to hold that the bulk of this passage, at least the portion pertaining to 
these things refers to the destruction of the temple. Jesus says, look, this, these things are so imminent that this generation is not going to pass away until it takes place. So, in these last three verses, Jesus is giving numerous time indicators. And we need to pay attention to what He is referring to. He's not only reiterating that there is a sign that will, that will precede the destruction of the temple, but He's indicating that the destruction will happen very soon after that sign, and it will happen within a lifetime of His predicting these things. And how certain is it that these things will take place? Verse 31, He says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but My words will not pass away. Jesus has pronounced judgment on the temple. There's nothing that can hold it back. It's going to happen. Of course, we know that in 70 AD it did. Now, for the last couple of weeks pertaining to the destruction of the temple, we've held that even though these things, the destruction of the temple, are past tense to us, they, they do teach us things. Just as the, the judgment on the temple has been predict, predicted, and fulfilled relative to us, so also there has been predicted the judgment of the whole world. Now, not everything of these, of these last few verses that we've looked at will, will have a parallel in the coming judgment of the world. Jesus says here that there are going to be obvious signs, and, and He gives time frames. We're going to see in the next few verses that, that we don't have those things with the second coming. Be patient with me, but we're going to see that there aren't time frames for the coming of second coming of Christ. There aren't signs that He's about to be here. He's going to show us that in a second. But one thing that is parallel is the certainty of the coming judgment of the world. Just as the destruction of the temple is certain, so also the destruction of the world, the judgment of the world is certain. Jesus said, my words will not pass away, meaning what I've predicted will come to fruition. My words will not pass away. The Lord, when the Lord says that, my words will not pass away, He's echoing the thoughts of Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11 reads this way. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So the, the Lord sent out words of destruction against the temple. They did not come back empty, but accomplished His purpose. The temple was destroyed in 78 AD. You can bet that the same will be true regarding the judgment of the world. Turn with me now over to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse 24. John 5, 24, there we find a passage where Jesus not just assumes the coming judgment of the world and not only straightforwardly predicts the coming judgment of the world, but He gives a singular way to avoid that judgment. John 5, 24, the Lord Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So here Jesus assumes there is a coming judgment, and He says that any who believes will not suffer that judgment. Rather, they have eternal life. Verse 25, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Now, what what does Jesus mean when He talks about the dead here? He means the spiritually dead. All people who are descended from Adam, that's all of us, everyone outside of this building, everyone descended from Adam are conceived dead in their trespasses and sins. Jesus calls to them through the preaching of the gospel, and those who hear that call come to spiritual life. Now, we might wonder, how can Jesus have that power? Well, He tells us in verse 26, For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. The Father is the author of of all life. He's given the Son also to have life in Himself so that the Son might give life to all whom He wishes. But glance back up at verse 25. Jesus speaks about this life-giving event as yet future to Himself. He says that the day is coming and is now here. What's He talking about? Well, in order for Him to convey life to others, Jesus needs to do two things. First of all, He needs to remove their sin by dying on the cross in their place. And second, He needs to be vindicated as the life giver by rising from the dead. And that's, of course, coming in the narrative of John. It's also coming in the narrative of Mark as we continue in Mark. That's why Jesus says, an hour is coming and is now here. It's it's right here. He's about to do this. He's about to atone for sin, and He's about to be vindicated, vindicated as the life giver by rising from the dead. All who hear His voice, this life giver's voice, that is all who turn from their sin and trust in Christ alone, they are forgiven, they're given eternal life, and they, they, they alone do not come into judgment. Verse 27, and... He, the Father, has given Him, the Son, authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. So, Jesus is not only the Savior of those who trust in Him, but He is also the judge of all others. Verse 28, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done, who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So what, what, what have we seen here? Well, a number of things. But just as certainly as Jesus said judgment would come upon the temple in Mark 13, so here in John 5, Jesus has said judgment is going to come upon those who are dead in sin. And listen to what Jesus says in, in Matthew 25, 34 about what He is going to say to the believing on that judgment day. Here's what Jesus will say to the believing on judgment day. He's going to say, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Listen to what Jesus will say on judgment day to those who are dead in sin. This is Matthew 25, 41. Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, Jesus has said in John 5, He has told us how to avoid the one in lieu of the other. How to avoid the judgment and gain eternal life. Listen to His voice in the gospel 
follow him, believe. Will this happen? Will this judgment day happen? This separation of the sheep from the goats, the believing from the unbelieving. Will this judgment day happen? Mark 13, 31. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Judgment day is certain. Now, these verses, verses in Mark 13, verses 28 through 31, actually set up a contrast. They set up a contrast that begins in verse 32 because the Lord shifts and begins to show how the second coming is actually different from the destruction of the temple and how we should prepare for that day. And we can boil it all down to this. Here's here's how you prepare for that day since we don't know when it's coming. Be ready by being busy. Be ready by being busy. Be ready by being busy. Verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So the the Lord is switching gears here. How do we know? It's the word but at the beginning of verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, the word but indicates a contrast between verses 28 through 31 and and this final section. In the the previous section where he he was discussing these things, These things pertaining to the destruction of the temple, there were time indicators, remember? There was a parable reminding them, when you see this, you know that these things are near. near. There was even a timetable given. It's going to happen within the lifetime of this current generation. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. The following verses indicate that he's referring once again to the second coming. So, whereas there were definitive ti- there were definitive signs and a rough timetable that could be known about the destruction of the table of, of the temple, not so with the second coming. And he emphasizes the point in verse thirty three, and also gives his main instruction for how to prepare. Look at verse thirty three: Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. You don't know when He's coming. You can't know. So, keep awake. Just be ready. Remember that He gave the parable of the fig tree in verse 28 regarding the destruction of the temple, indicating here's how you can know when that's near. In contrast, now He gives a parable regarding the second coming, predicting the inability to know when when it's coming, and how one should live in light of its certainty. So, so listen, so he gave, he gave the parable of the fig tree. Here's how you can know when the destruction of the temple is coming. He's about to give another, another parable that says, look, you can't know when this is happening, and here's how you live in light of it. Verse 34, it is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Now put yourself in this situation. What is the natural tendency when the boss is gone? We've all been there. It's the natural tendency when the boss is gone. Take it easy. Especially if you know when he's coming back. If you know the timetable, you have a little vacation of your own. All you need to do is the day before, perhaps the hour before. Depends on how much work there is to do. Just set things in order. Right before he, he gets back. I have a major crush on a woman who works at a gym. It's, uh, 
my, my wife of 26 years. Right now, one of the department heads at, at the gym is on vacation. And that department is not running very smoothly. Because it is known when she's coming back. And an interesting phenomenon, is it not? The subordinates know when the boss is coming back. But what if you have no idea? What if you have no idea when the boss is coming back? What do you, what do you have to do? Well, you just have to stay busy. Verse 35. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. Now, there are a few questions that we need to answer here. First of all, what, what is the work that, that we should be about? The work represented by this idea of being awake. He says, see, he says here, stay awake. What is the work that is represented by that phrase, staying awake is a metaphor attached to the parable. He doesn't mean literally stay awake. Those of us who, who tend toward insomnia, we'd be like, well, we've got this nailed. But it's, that, that is a metaphor attached to the, to the parable. The staying awake was the particular job of the doorkeeper in the parable. Staying awake, what, what, what work does that represent in the life of the believer? Well, it's classical and, and most succinct Expression is found in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Some of us have this memorized, right? You, you, all, all you need to know is the reference. Matthew 28, verses 29 and 30. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. The work of the disciple is... Making disciples. And making disciples, just, just to be clear, based upon Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, is ministering the gospel to people in such a way that they go from being dead in their trespasses and sins all the way to being completely mature in Christ. It's working to see that the lost become saved and the saved become sanctified. Making disciples. That's the work. A second question is, obviously it matters whether or not we do the work because he says you don't want to be found asleep. That's, that's the whole point of the, of the parable. You don't want to be found asleep. That is, you don't want to be found not doing the work of making disciples. So the, the second question is, why does that matter? Why does it matter that we are found doing the work when he comes? Well, we could say that there are numerous answers to that question. The first would be, just because our great Savior told us to. He, he told us to. We should love the Lord so much that just as it was His delight to do the work of the Father, so also it is our delight to do the work of the Son. But the second answer to that question is this. Doing the work is a direct indication of whether we believe the message. Doing the work is a direct indication of whether we believe the message. 
We do not obey what we do not believe. I would encourage you to read the book of Hebrews. The whole, the whole thing, just beginning to end. Probably take you 45 minutes maybe. I bet you've got 45 minutes. Just read the whole thing. That truth, we, we do not obey what we do not believe, that is so tightly woven into the logic of the book that the author almost uses the words obey and believe interchangeably. Now, I'm not arguing that, that those words are interchangeable. What I'm saying is that they are so tightly bound together that in reality, you don't find one without the other. You don't find true faith without obedience. And you don't find true obedience without faith. And that's why we should care about this thing of, of being busy. The person who is not busy about the business of the kingdom is a person who does not believe the message of the kingdom. And so if he comes and finds us asleep, not busy about the work of the kingdom, he's found people who don't believe the message of the kingdom. Verse 37, And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. First, Jesus is very pointed here for our sakes. Do you get that? He's clearly, he, look, Peter, Andrew, James, John, those are the four that we found at the beginning of the chapter. These are the four that he's having this conversation with. Hey, I'm not just saying this for your benefit. But for everybody, this is very much like the high priestly prayer in John 17. where Jesus is, is praying for the disciples and He says to the Father, not just for these that I'm praying, but for all who will believe because of their word. Very similar. This is not just for you, but for everybody who's going to come after you. Hey, Providence Bible Fellowship 2022, stay awake. And remember, that that, that is just the metaphor for be ready by being busy about the business of the kingdom. Be diligent gospel workers. And here's, here's a great irony. This passage is telling us very pointedly, you're not going to know when He's coming back. You're just not going to know. Just be ready by being busy about the work of the kingdom. But what do so many people do with eschatology? They're overwhelmingly preoccupied with trying to figure out, when's he coming back? When's he coming back? What does this world event mean? Does this mean that he's, it, it, it could be any second now? And many of those people haven't shared the gospel in years, if ever. It's tragically ironic. Others are doing exactly what the parable warns against. They're, they're those who are like... The, the person working for the boss who's on vacation and uh, they're, they're acting like they know when the boss is coming home. They're just taking it easy until it's almost time for him to come and they think that, that it'll be obvious when he's about to come. And when it's obvious that he's about to come, well, then they'll get busy. What, what should we say to that kind of behavior? Given there's the straightforward imperative here, stay awake. 
be busy about the work of the kingdom. What should we think about that kind of behavior? The behavior of the employee who's taking it easy until right before the boss gets back. We should regard that as the behavior of a disobedient servant who gives every indication that they don't actually believe. And, and, I, and I have a few questions. I, I ask these questions not to shame anybody, but just to... to prompt a little bit of introspection because I don't think that we think about these things. Do we really believe in hell? Do we really believe in hell? If we spend the same amount of time warning people about hell as we do warning people about Sasquatches, which is not at all, do we really believe in hell? Do we really believe that Jesus is the only hope for mankind doomed to hell if we don't ever tell people that? We, we obey what we believe and our unbelief Maybe why we are content to sleep. That is, that is why, why we are content to, do the, to not do the work of the kingdom as we wait for his return. And I would say that, that this passage is indicating that when he returns, he'll regard our sleeping not merely as disobedience, but as unbelief. And that's why this passage reads as a warning. Look back up at verse 33. Be on guard. Remember, I mentioned last week, that, that's a key word in the whole chapter. Beware. Beware. Be on guard. The passage is a straight-up warning from beginning to end. We saw it first in verse 5. When he first started talking, he has said, Beware. 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 Be on guard. Get ready. Keep your eyes open. Stay awake. Christ is coming to gather His elect. Judgment day is certain. You don't know when it's going to happen. Believe. Trust in Him. Follow Him. And among the evidence that you have is being busy about kingdom work. I think I've said this before. and I think that it's worth saying again. It's probably worth writing down if you're taking notes. We stink at believing. We stink at believing. Even believers. And the, the reason that I say that, this is not just experience, it's not what I've seen in my own life or, or, in, or in other believers. I gather this from the Scriptures. Do you know why I would say that? Because we're constantly prodded to keep believing. There's constant exhortations throughout the New Testament. Keep believing. I mean, the apostles, it, it seems to be their pattern in the book of Acts. Right after they would have people converted to Christ, they would say, keep believing, keep yourselves in the faith. Keep believing. Who was it that Paul said this to in Romans? I am eager to preach the gospel to you. It's to believers. Why is it that Paul preaches the gospel in every one of his letters, all written to believers? Why is it that we preach the gospel every Sunday? Why is it that I'm so eager to hear Pastor Jason preach next week? I am eager to hear Pastor Jason preach next week. We need to hear the gospel because it stirs up our faith 
unto greater belief. We stink at believing, and the Holy Spirit uses the gospel to stir us up to greater faith. We need to preach the gospel to each other. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves. As we daily pray, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We need to meet together, not only on Sundays, but but on other days, saying to each other, please tell me the old, old story. You know, the the elders, as we do these these interviews for, for prospective members, do you know what we love about these interviews? We love hearing prospective members tell us the gospel. Love it. Love it. Because we need it. We need it. We need to hear it so that we'll stay awake. We need to hear it so that we'll believe. And so that believing will make disciples and be found making disciples as He commanded us to when He returns. We like to be prepared, don't we, when people come over? We like to be prepared. Well, here's how to prepare for the second coming. Live on a steady diet of the gospel and be about the Lord's business as good stewards of the grace given to you. That's how to prepare. You don't know the day or the hour. Be about gospel work. Let's pray. Father, we look forward to that day. Look forward to that day when you say to the Son, it's time. We thank you, Father, that you have known us so well that you know better than to tell us when that's going to be. And so you have just instructed us to be ready. We confess to you, of course, our, our natural tendency toward unbelief, laziness in belief. And, and we, we just, we, we desperately cry out to you to help us that as we continue to hear the good news from our own lips and the lips of others and in the scriptures and in sermons and songs that your Holy Spirit would use these things to stir us up to deeper faith, to deeper love for you and to, for, for, for other believers, for the lost, that we might be about the work of the gospel. So that, Father, when Christ comes, he will find us busy find gospel work indicative of a church that truly believes the good news. Please work in us, Father. We need it, and we pray for it in Jesus' name.